My name is Holly Lewis. I'm Lawson Keeney. And I am Jean Lewis. And welcome to The Long Watch, the internet's premier pro-John Lithgow podcast where we stick to the list for better or worse. This week we have the third in Lawson's loose trilogy. My personal trilogy. Yeah. You'd find it in a box set. Yeah, definitely. Little collection. I don't know. If that's the case, then I think this week's one is the kind of the odd one out in that box yeah. set in terms of its focus on science rather than fantasy. Well, it's literary in nature. In the vaguest possible way, sure. Sure. But yes, we indeed have watched iRobot, starring Will Smith. But before we get into that, we'll talk about what we've seen within the week. Lawson, why don't you start us off? Certainly. To start off this week, I saw Salem's Lot. Hey. Hmm. It is a supernatural horror movie directed by Mikhail Salomon. And I know some people, if they're aware of this, are going to challenge me on its status as a movie. It aired on TNT in two parts over two nights, but it is presented on the DVD I have as a movie, as one continuous three-hour thing stitched together. So that's the way I'm treating it, because it's my list. Screw you. It's based on the Stephen King novel of the same name, and it follows the writer Ben Mears, played by Rob Lowe, as he returns to his hometown of Jerusalem's lot, just in time to be present for a supernatural takeover of the town by vampires. This is a great story that's adapted really well. I mean, the whole thing is an allegory. It's Mm. small town secrets that eat at people and corrode at people. And that's sort of made literal by the threat of these vampires and, and sort of the human weakness and cowardice is what takes these people out ultimately. And it brings that story to the screen really well. It's got a lot of threads in it, the book, a lot of different characters. It was actually the first Stephen King book that I read, Salem's Lot. King has a lot going on in that. And the adaptation here does a good job of weaving all of those different threads together. It makes me wonder what what they're going to do in the, uh, the James Wan produced adaptation coming out soon because... I feel like the only way to really get that to a two-hour length is to cut a ton of those subplots. But it really sells here the fall of this town, this feeling of creeping dread that something's happening below the surface of the place. And it's not like obvious in the light of day that that all of these people are, are being taken over by the vampires, but something's going on and everyone can kind of feel it. it. It sells that feeling in a really cool way. It's this eerie apocalyptic mood and the script is very good it does have exposition problems where again it's it's got so many different threads running at once it it can have a bit of a hard time with really getting all of that information out and certainly it falls back on some fairly clunky let me just explain to you all of this at once uh, moments one too often that can be a problem with King adaptations because the books are so dense in nature that to really get the stories across, you need scenes of exposition. Mm. But you get some really good uh, narration by Lowe throughout. I don't think it's actually taken from the novel, but it's certainly written in the style of a, of a Stephen King prose. So he gets some good stuff there. And... I mean, the book had some great moments in it, some great twists, stuff that you don't see coming. People who you don't expect being killed very suddenly, stuff like that. It pulls that across really, really well, and the execution of those scenes are really good. It's nice and creepy, and it is vampires, but there's also the implication of something else going on. 
underneath the vampires as well, that there might be something about this town in particular that was rotten far before the vampires arrived. It could actually have done with even more time. It could have done with more than three hours. It's, it is too ambitious a novel to fit all of it in this shorter space of time. And honestly, they might have actually been a little better off cutting some of the more superfluous threads. But, I mean, this seems like the kind of thing that's just sort of primed for a six-episode limited series. But you have an outstanding cast. You have, as I said, Rob Lowe, Andre Brower, Donald Sutherland, Rutger Hauer, James Cromwell, Dan Bird. The female characters are all very underserved, though. They don't get very much to do. And, you know, that that was also a problem in the novel. But really, there's only two female characters of note in this version of the story. But it was filmed in Australia, in Victoria. And you can tell, because the foliage is very much bush foliage, not main foliage and they seem to have color corrected it so that the backgrounds look gray and wintry in a way that is pretty obvious once you notice it you may not notice it if you're an american i think you will notice that the 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 trees don't look right yeah they'll notice that but they won't be able to pick it exactly Mm. when you've lived in australia your entire life or have even visited you tend to be able to tell and of course by virtue of it being in australia a lot of the the supporting cast are filled out by australian actors i mean rebecca gibney turns up she gets turned into a vampire next i watched the manchurian candidate it is a conspiracy thriller directed by jonathan demi it is based on the book of the same name by richard condon and it follows ben marco played by denzel washington he's a gulf war veteran and his old squad mate raymond shaw played by Leah schreiber is running for vice president of the United States. And at this time, Marco starts to have some troubling dreams suggesting that his memories of the period that they served together, stuff has been suppressed and memories have been implanted. And basically he discovers that he and Raymond are both pawns in a conspiracy for control of the US government. It's kind of hard to describe how it feels watching this in 2021 because it's certainly not like you could not say well that's clearly accurate but there is kind of like just the mood of it the idea of this subversion of democracy that's running under it all Mm. has a different tenor to it now yeah it's different it's a good thriller story prone to really cheesy execution i mean the basic premise is extremely far-fetched but it is interesting and it has some really cool beats. It was obviously, it was originally adapted in, I think, the 60s by, um, I mean, Frank Sinatra was in that one. And it's been updated from that adaptation and from the book as well, because the book was written during that period also. But it's been updated from, you know, communists being, you know, the secret bad guys trying to brainwash a vice president so that they can secretly control the US government to big business. And it has these sort of commentary on the idea of, puppet politicians, that these people who donate so much money to these political candidates that once they are in office, they then pursue the interests of those companies. The war on terror is a big aspect in this film. There's a lot of commentary on that. Obviously, it was made a year after the invasion of Iraq. And the movie seems to be set in 2012 at the earliest, but more likely 2016, just given some of the facts there that Bush is no longer president at the time that the movie is starting. But it sort of imagines this version of, you know, the mid-teens in which the war on terror has persisted and actually become a really ongoing, increasingly 
bloody affair where you you get all these like snapshots of news stories that these terrorist attacks that are happening like regularly in the streets of America. And so it sort of creates this whole mood there of the idea that sort of everything is sprawling out of control and it creates this kind of dystopic view of, of government in that way. It squanders a little bit of an opportunity, I think, which was to leave it really ambiguous as to whether Marco is right or whether he actually is Hmm. suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, which is what all of the other characters think is what's actually happening. Because, of course, why would you believe that this huge conspiracy about a brainwashed vice presidential candidate when there's no real proof other than this guy's word and he's acting increasingly erratic? I think it would actually have been more interesting if towards the beginning of the story they had leaned into that more and they had actually made it much more subjective and kept us not really sure whether Marco was right or not. But as it is, they very immediately tell us that this is an objective truth, that this is a thing that is happening. Kind of gets rid of some of the tension. Yeah. Uh, And the tone just gets too ridiculous sometimes for me to take seriously, even though it is supposed to be taken seriously. There's the, you know, the big party that they're holding to, you know, celebrate Shaw and, and also the presidential nominee. And they show this like little little video to all the awaiting audiences and all the networks are carrying it and it like ends with Liev Schreiber and this other guy's faces imposed on Mount Rushmore and it's like well that's just ridiculous that's just stupid and no political party would ever do that because they would immediately be attacked for being you know incredibly narcissistic yeah it's too clumsy to be great satire as a whole the movie I think and that blunts its blows yeah but you do get great performances I mean you get Washington and Schreiber but Meryl Streep steals the whole thing as Raymond Shaw's mother. She is Hillary Clinton by way of Lady Macbeth. Oh. You watch that performance, especially some of the start of it. That performance gets crazier as it goes on and she's asked to do more and more insane things. But at the start, when she's just playing a, a normal, very strong politician, she's got the pantsuit on, she's got the hairdo. There are some shots where it just looks so much like Hillary Clinton. You're like, yeah... If they ever make that 2016 election movie or series, they've got to get Meryl Streep. Mm. But I next watched Collateral. It is a thriller directed by Michael Mann. It's about an L.A. taxi driver named Max, played by Jamie Foxx. He is starting his night shift, and he picks up Vincent, played by Tom Cruise, who turns out to be an assassin. And Max is taken hostage and made to chauffeur Vincent around L.A. to different spots so he can take these people out this is one of those sort of one crazy night stories where it all takes place over this really condensed period of time i quite like those kinds of stories and the core crime plot here is secondary to the characters in fact i would say that the core crime plot kind of hurts the pace sometimes it didn't need to be two hours because the best stuff is just max and vincent and them bouncing off of each other. Their relationship develops. I wouldn't call it friendly. I think that Vincent develops a certain... They become familiar. Yeah, Vincent Vincent becomes a little bit softer to Max. Max never does because Max is being held hostage by an assassin. Yeah, <laughs> it's not so big a deal for Vincent. For Vincent, yes. Um, but they become familiar and they start talking to each other in these familiar ways and really sort of attacking each other's own weaknesses and failings and analyzing each other and playing these sort of mind games with each other and that's really great it's excellent writing and it is an acting showcase fox is playing against type you normally see jamie fox as this very sort of cool very competent kind of badass kind of characters and in this he is 
neurotic, nervous, weak. He stutters a lot. He's just a guy. He's just a guy. And over the course of the movie, obviously, he goes through a character transformation and ends up having to really step up because of what's happening to him. But this is Tom Cruise's movie. It is the best performance I've ever seen Tom Cruise give. It is so different. I've seen this before. In most Tom Cruise movies, even ones where he's doing really well, like Mission Impossible or all of those other types of films, it's always Tom Cruise. Yeah. More than it is the characters. But here, he's going for it. And this is only like the second time in his career that he has played a villain. Mm. I think the second and last. Yeah, he doesn't do it. He just doesn't. And he is very good at it in this film. The best parts of the movie are just him and Fox going back and forth together. But you get some of that really classic Michael Mann minutia, just the tiny little extra details that he puts so much effort and choreography into making it seem unscripted and spontaneous. Mm. Like, it's such a paradoxical thing that that he achieves this effect of making it all seem very sort of visceral and lived in by planning it out so meticulously and doing takes over and over and over and over and over again, getting like 30 takes of Mark Ruffalo on a cell phone call until he gets the one that he wants exactly. And the juxtaposition of that idea is is an interesting one. You get a good finale, though. I quite like the finale. And it's creatively filmed. It's actually kind of groundbreaking. It, It was the first use of a digital HD camera for the majority of a studio film. Yeah. And that really allowed for night shoots with very little lighting because that's the thing when you're using film is that it it tends to need a lot of light to light up dark spaces, whereas a digital camera can... It picks up photons a lot easier. Yeah. And I knew all of that because... This film is so noticeable when it comes to that filmmaking filmmaking technique that it's in textbooks when mm. you're learning to analyze and make film. It's available for streaming in Australia on Netflix, Prime Video, and Stan, if anybody is interested. Also, the silver hair on Tom Cruise. It's a good look. I mean, you would think that we'd be starting to see a bit of that in real life, but the man You'd is think. almost 60 and just refuses still it. looks exactly the same as he did 20 years ago. And I've said this before, one day Tom Cruise will die doing a stunt, and that's the only way he'll die. That or he will outlive us all. Oh, I'm fully prepared to acknowledge that. I next watch Open Water. It is a thriller directed by Chris Kentis. It is about a vacation couple named Susan, played by Blanchard Ryan, and Daniel, played by Daniel Travis. They go deep sea diving, and back on the boat that had been transporting all these tourists, there is a mistake in the headcount. And so they are left behind, and the boat goes back to shore. They are stuck together in the middle of the ocean with sharks circling. So, do you recall off the coast of Queensland in the late 90s, there was this couple, Tom and Eileen Lonergan, who this happened to them. And by the time they realised that they were missing, they were just never found again. I mean, there were no sharks as far as we know, but they were just never found. Vaguely. Vaguely, yeah. I remember this vaguely too, because... I mean, obviously, I wasn't really old enough to know about it by then, but the trial went on so long that I I remember zoning in for bits of it as I got older. That's what this movie is inspired by. It's sort of imagining what might have happened to these people after they were left behind. And there's not much here other than that, but it is very impressive indie filmmaking. It was a tiny crew. It was shot on digital video. They used real sharks that they spent pretty much half the budget hiring with a shark wrangler for two days. 
It is proper guerrilla filmmaking. The narrative is very simple. You spend some time with them, then you drop them in the ocean and you let them panic. It is a very lean story. It's only 80 minutes long, but still, that's pushing it. Them stuck is most of the movie, and most of that is their dialogue with each other. Ryan and Travis are both good as as the actors. They have effective chemistry. You like them. You want them to get out of it, even though you know that they probably won't. But it looks awful, obviously due to the format, the way it was filmed, the, the cheapness of the cameras. And the land scenes look really cheap looking again because they were cheap. But the ocean stuff is impressive. And obviously that they have forgone some of the more expensive comforts of filming to allow them to do stuff like have a camera that will film underwater. And yeah can be in the water with them and close up to them and go under the water and look at them from down below from the perspective of sharks and things. And in that stuff, it's like really creative. And you've got to give some real props to the filming crew who did this on such a tiny budget. It's available for streaming in Australia on Stan if anyone is interested. I just love the idea of the sharks going on a press tour. <laughs> and like the sh- the sharks have a rider, a thing that they need before they do the job. Yeah. And only green M and M's in their hotel room. Yeah. <laughs> I next watched Open Water Two: Adrift. It is directed by Hans Horn. This movie says on the cover of the Blu-ray that it is based on true events, but it does not appear to be. In fact, Wikipedia suggests that it is based on the short story Adrift by Koji Suzuki. It has no connection to the first film. They didn't bring the sharks back. No. Oh. It appears to have started as an original IP, just called Adrift. But there are no sharks in this. There are just annoying idiots who go out on a yacht together and don't lower the ladder to get back on before they go swimming. (laughs) One, how thick could you be? And two, this is why I don't go to the ocean. Exactly. That's what I was thinking this whole time, Harley. Nothing good happens out there. I keep seeing it. Also... Why on earth don't they just, like, build yachts with a little bit of... Or, or build boats in general that are that big with slight indentations in the side, just in case that happens, you know? Mm. Just a, a small indentation where, if you really had to, you could get up with your fingertips and your toes. Well, I think it's something about aerodynamics, because that still applies to boats. Also, water might get into that. You could have, like, a, a little tiny part of it down at one end of the boat, just in case. So are they just floating in the water? Yeah. It gets better as it goes along. You have some really ineffective characters here to begin with. They are poorly performed. They are badly established. But once they're in the water, it starts to work a lot more. You have six characters this time, not just two. And that allows for them to turn on each other more and for the personalities to really come into conflict with each other in an interesting way. They're not exactly likeable. I mean, maybe two of them are likeable because there are, there are two of them who actually behave sensibly and actually don't really deserve to be in the situation that they're in. But they are more interesting than the two characters in the first film. The obstacles in the path of these characters are more pronounced. And like in the first film, they were sitting in the ocean. Every now and then a shark would come up and see if it could get at them and then they chase it away and then you, they talk a bit more. Here, you get more pronounced little episodic beats there. Like, one of them goes underneath the boat to see if there's sort of a a hatch or something. It doesn't make much sense, but they're panicking at that point. They're trying to see if there's anything underneath the boat to get back in. But in going under there, one of them hits 
his head and gets a skull fracture, so that becomes a problem they have to deal with. Hold on, no one was left on the boat? No. They actually do a decent job of explaining why that is, and the person who is responsible for that mistake gets all of the ire from the rest of the group. Basically, there's this woman who's deathly afraid of the ocean and was not planning on going in. She's only there because it's one of the other people's birthdays, but she did not want to go in the ocean, and instead her douchebag friends was like, the best way to get over fear is to confront it, and picks her up and jumps in with her. And they only realise after the fact that there's no ladder, that they haven't let the ladder down. But it also complicated is the fact that, that two of them are a couple and their infant child is still on the boat, and they need to find a way to get back up there, or this kid's gonna, like, starve at sea basically there's this whole other thing where you know they're they're trying you know can we use the flag at the prow of the boat to climb up the flag can we take all of our clothes off and make a rope out of our clothes that we can try and throw over the top then they all just end up naked for the rest of the movie oh the cast are stuck with the material that they're given but they also don't elevate anything i would say that richard spate jr is miscast in the role that he is in eric dane is got nothing to do other than be really irritating, and no one else is recognisable at all. Except for one of them, who I did find out later on was a voice of a, of a party member in Mass Effect, so I got a bit excited when I realised that, but at the time, didn't didn't recognise them at all. But it is really well shot by Horn. You get some really, really impressive images, stuff that you'd be like, yeah, you could frame that, actually. And it's shot on decent equipment this time around, and you get a very good Gerd Bowman score over the top. But yes, it is the trashier, dumber, but maybe slightly more entertaining version of this premise. Anyways, I next watched Open Water 3 Cage Dive. It is directed by Gerald Racionato. It has no connection to either of the previous two films. It was filmed as Into the Deep. Some places just call it Cage Dive, including Australia, but it is in the Open Water franchise in America, so that's how I've chosen to categorise it. It's about these unlikable American half-brothers, Jeff, played by Joel Hogan, and Josh, played by Josh Pothoff, and Josh's girlfriend, Megan, played by Megan Pater Hill. They go cage diving off of the South Australian coast, and a freak wave capsizes the boat that they were on. This time, the sharks are back. I take it back, the characters in two were geniuses compared to these people. This is a found footage film, which the first two were not. This is them filming all of their exploits as they're out there, and then they keep filming after they're capsized just in case they don't make it. But there are a few decent uses of the found footage thing as a concept, but it's not really necessary. It's presented also as a distributed product. It sort of intercuts interviews and fake news footage that, you know, supposedly is about this incident, and it it is made that, that this is a documentary that has been distributed that is depicting what happened to these people, which is very... Yeah, you wouldn't get that with some of the grisly images that get on this this thing, but... That's sort of the one problem with the found footage concept in general. They try so hard to make it this meta narrative. Hmm. Like, oh, people found it, and... Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. But because it's set in Australia, especially, like, the news footage that they do has some in-jokes, like there is NBN News... <laughs> there is ABC News, but it's both of the different ABC logos. It's the Australian ABC and the American ABC <laughs> together. Seven News is the one that, like, the proper logo and everything, that Seven News is the one that all of the news footage is from. <laughs> I will just say that it has, like, one of the clunkiest, unintentionally laugh-out-loud funniest 
implementations of the found footage concept I've seen, which is, I mean, spoiler alert, they all die. I mean, that's why it's found footage. Otherwise, it's not found footage, it's just footage. But at the end of the movie, the camera is dropped by the last surviving character as the shark attacks him. And we see from the perspective of the camera as it sort of floats down to the bottom of the ocean facing up. So you get a an upward facing shot as the sharks like get this guy and blood fills the the whole frame and then it just cuts to black and then we would like to thank all the families involved fades onto the screen <laughs> oh my god i mean it, it reminds me of that thing at the end of like halloween 6 the one that donald pleasance died during the middle of so that they had to sort of retcon the ending to make it seem like his character was killed off screen by michael myers that he sort of goes into a room alone and then you hear him screaming and it cuts to black and the credits start. And the first credit, pretty much just after you hear the man screaming, is in loving memory of Donald Pleasance. It's a, it's a weird thing. But this was one of those weird sort of Armageddon, Deep Impact, Olympus Has Fallen, White House Down kind of competing movies things, mm. where this came out the same year as 47 Meters Down, which was also about a cage dive gone awry. But whereas that movie was pretty much set in the cage down at the bottom of the ocean, they get out of the cage really quickly. They're barely in the cage in this thing. Boo. At least the second movie had a take, you know? This is just a retread of the first one with less likable characters. I mean, these characters are total morons. There is one scene alone that tells us that this is Darwin in action. There's too much panicking and bickering. Like, the reason that they're filming in the first place is as an audition tape for reality television. So there's a ton of cringy stuff with that. But the fact that this came out in 2017 means that technology has progressed enough that you get actually some more complicated shark attacks that you see more stuff and they can use CG a bit more Mm. in some interesting ways. So there's that. That's kind of cool. Lastly, for the week, I watched Cellular. It is a thriller directed by David R. Ellis. It is about a woman named Jessica, played by Kim Basinger. She is kidnapped and she is being held in an attic. And there was a phone in the attic, but the kidnappers smash it. But... She, being a high school science teacher, messes around with the wires of the phone and starts pressing them together in the hopes that they will call someone, anyone, and they do. It calls the mobile phone of Ryan, played by Chris Evans, and he becomes her only hope, but he can't hang up, or she won't be able to get the call again. It's real dopey, but it's not without some entertainment value. It seems like it should have been made in the early 1990s. I mean, it is that kind of a thriller. Phones don't work like this anymore, and I'm not sure they ever did. But it is pretty generic. It is effective moment by moment, but it is a very generic film. It's an old race against time thing. It it does not do a very good job at all of telling us why Chris Evans cannot go to the police and let them handle this, especially in the early goings of, of the piece, before he really gets swept up in it. There's really no great reason why he has to do this by himself. They just rush past that and hope you don't notice it. There are some very generic villains that that don't make for interesting opponents, led by Jason Statham doing an American accent. This movie probably being the reason he doesn't do accents anymore. Yeah, The cast are trying, at least. William H. Macy is doing the best of all of them. And the movie gained points for using Nina Simone's Cineman during a pivotal sequence, then instantly lost them once I realised that it was a shitty dance remix of Cineman. Mm. If you would like to watch this film, it is available for streaming in Australia on Paramount Plus and Stan. So that's me done for the week. What about you guys? What have you been watching? Right, so we watched two things this week. First, we watched 
a new Netflix series that's become quite popular on social media. It is called Squid Game. Ah, uh, yes, I've heard about this. Like, it seems weirdly on track to be their most watched series ever. Yeah. yeah. And they are now being sued by a South Korean web provider for taking up too much traffic. <laughs> yeah. yeah. This is a South Korean Netflix production. The person who came up with the show and the story shopped it to a lot of South Korean production companies, but finally found some success with Netflix. Within Squid Game, hundreds of cash-strapped players accept a strange invitation to compete in children's games. Inside, a tempting prize awaits with deadly high stakes. A survival game that is a whopping $45.6 billion prize at stake. This is very, very similar in feeling to something like Alice in Borderlands. Another series that John and I truly adored when we were watching it. This series has a lot to say about capitalism, displaced people, and how people in power can pit people against others for money and chances to survive. Obviously... As you can probably tell, each of these children's games have a dark sort of twist to them. The first being a game called Green Light, Red Light. Lawson, you would know this game as Grandmother's Keys. I No, I do not. No? What's the time, Mr. Wolf? I, I Look, it's been a very long time since I was a child. Can you just explain? <laughs> Basically, you get one person standing at the end of the field, and when they've turned their back to everybody else... They can walk towards the person. When the person at the end of the field turns back around, they have to stop or they're out. Okay. See, yeah, I I never played that as a kid. Yes, we did often. What games did you play as a child? Duck, Duck, Goose, Hide and Go Seek, Tag. Brandy? No. See, that's about it. I wasn't sort of a, a play outside kind of kid, you know? And I was also an only child, so it was kind of like, unless I was with a group, I sort of made my own fun. <laughs> to be fair, we did a lot of these games as theatre games and drama games as well. Squid Game follows Ji-hun Sung, played by Jung Jae Lee, who's essentially an entire mess of a person. Gambling, he's three years divorced, he's in debt to several different creditors in the city. The acting is phenomenal here by the cast. It's great, I always love to see how many people they can get in one scene in shows like this. I'm I'm always really fascinated increasingly now, considering that all the stuff we're seeing would have to have been filmed during COVID. Yes, this one was. And apparently they had very strict guidelines. Yeah. Feels like, hopefully, you know, knock on wood, it feels like we might be reaching the end of the restricted crowd scenes yes. period of the pandemic in a few months' time. But It seems to be moving in that direction. Hmm. We've only seen the first episode of this, so we haven't gotten that much of the story. But it's very good. It's very entertaining. The dark twists to the games are really fun. I'm not going to tell you what they are. This is truly a very interesting series, a lot like Alice in Borderlands in terms of the idea of the game mm. as a concept and how that can be twisted on its head as a real critique of capitalism. I can see a show like Squid Game be translated to an Australian setting or an American setting because yeah. these are very, very universal themes. This is... A show that has a universal theme told in a very South Korean way, with a lot of the yeah. specific South Korean cultural contexts. 
And just the visual design of the show is fantastic as well. Each of the games is presented in these very clean, really charming atmospheres. If you've seen the trailers, you would see the MC Escher-like stairways and shit that the players walk along to get to each of the different games. I'm really excited to watch more of this. Yeah, me too. If you want to watch it, you can find it on Netflix. We also started on part two of American Horror Story Double Feature, Death Valley. Can I just ask right off the top, does it appear to be connected to part one? Not from the first episode, but it is connected. So Death Valley has two narratives running at the same time, separated by decades. One of the narratives follows Neil McDonough as Dwight Eisenhower, President of the United (laughs) States of America. And he's good in it. He's good in this. Yeah, but I I just love, like, all of the cast that I see listed on the internet for this are, like, playing real-life, high-profile historical figures. And it follows him and a extraterrestrial event that has occurred. You see, the army have shot down a UFO, it would seem, and they have also found Amelia Earhart 20 years (laughs) after she went missing. Alright, I'm in. I'm in. I'm totally in. Amelia Earhart is played by Lily Rabe. Dwight Eisenhower's wife is played by Sarah Paulson, and it is incredible. This is... All of this stuff set in the past is filmed in black and white, and there's theremins, there's, you know, grey alien-looking aliens, tentacles everywhere, good shit. Heads exploding. Heads exploding scanners, like, brilliant. And it's, it's shot in black and white like it was meant to be, like it's lit in a way mm. that makes it work. A lot of other shows that have less effort put into them would simply put a black and white filter over it, but no, they've actually taken care to doing the lighting correctly. It's a pet peeve of mine when they don't do it right. And alongside that, we've also got a narrative set in modern day, but without COVID. It follows four friends who have gone out to camp in Death Valley and have been seemingly abducted. This is a interesting turn a lot of people have been very against this first episode of death valley but i like this stuff in the past i don't care that much for the stuff in the present day even though it doesn't bother me as much as it seems to other people but i just like seeing alien shit this is interesting because just the the description of it seems much more my thing than the first part red tide Mm. i know that people were really i i did see like a Big negative reaction against the last episode of Red Tide. Yes. Oh, yeah. It was 37 minutes, but it was too long. (laughs) It was not. I think there was a way to cut off sort of like the back half of that last episode, and you've got an incredibly tight season. There's a such thing as answering too many questions. Bingo. That first half, did it feel like it wrapped up as a singular narrative, or did it feel like there's still something to be resolved? Yes. There are still questions. There are still questions, but I don't think it's necessary. We get answers for a lot of things. Look, there were still questions, but it ended less mysterious than I would have hoped. Yeah. I'm still really liking this season so far. Yeah. You know, last episode of Red Tie notwithstanding, but... The show has gone in interesting directions. It has, for the most part, eschewed some of the more camp elements that the show has had in the past. It has eschewed some of the 
Obsession with high fashion. Obsession with high fashion and obsession with image that past things have had. I love the designs of the monsters that we've had so far. I love the designs of the characters. But in Death Valley, the aliens are like straight up grey aliens. Yeah. And that is so refreshing to see in a show that's taking it semi-seriously. So... The first episode of Death Valley is going in a very interesting direction. I don't agree with you, Harley, on the present day stuff. I find that very interesting as well. I'm not saying I don't find it interesting. I'm saying I find it less interesting. Because Neil McDonough is my guy. Neil McDonough is my guy as well. Yes, he is great in this. He is simultaneously fed up with everyone coming to him with their problems, but is also just really trying to hold down the fort. When all of this weird stuff is happening. So yeah, I think this second half has a lot of potential. Also, more theremins. Theremins are such a cool alien Explain to the listeners what that means. A theremin is a type of electronic instrument where, you know, in those old sort of like early 70s, late 60s movies, particularly science fiction ones, they go... Shit like no, that. No, we'll, we'll put an actual clip of. Yes, obviously, I was just here. doing it yeah. for the spot where I put the example, John. No, just keep that whole thing in and put the clip in now. <laughs> unnatural in a lot of ways yeah it's it's a it's a form of synthesizer it hits this interesting part in like your lizard brain that makes you go oh that's not a right sound that's not a yeah proper sound that's naturally made by anything yeah and it it works at making things seem more alien yeah because theremins were used very often in the 50s to score science fiction yeah so it just really lands now I'm looking forward to the rest of this. Yep. You can find that in Australia on Binge on Foxtel. So now we're going to play for you the trailer to I, Robot. We designed them to be trusted with our homes. With our way of life. With our world. But did we design them... To be trusted. The rollout of USR's new generation of robot, the NS5, was marred by the death of designer Alfred Lanning. Identify. Murder's a new trick for a robot. Respond. I did not murder him! We're gonna miss the good old days. What good old days? When people were killed by other people. My robots don't kill people. That thing threw somebody out of a window. Is that registering with you? A robot cannot harm a human being. And you trust them if you want to. We look to robots for protection. Imagine the loss of all that we've gained because of an irrational paranoia. Does thinking you're the last sane man on the face of the earth make you crazy? Because if it does, maybe I am. Maybe you can be looking in the shadows all the time. 
inside. Help me find out what is wrong with these robots. Dr. Lanning suggested robots might naturally evolve. I was hoping to see you again, Detective. Think of me as your friend. Why didn't you just hand the world over on a silver platter? Maybe we did. We are on the eve of the largest robotic distribution in history. There'll be one robot to every five humans. How many robots have ever committed a crime? How many robots in the world? None. There is no conspiracy. What this is, is one mistake. Oh, hell no. Somehow, I told you so, just doesn't quite say it. Get off my car! I see you remain suspicious of me, Detective. You know what they say about old dogs? Not really. Gotcha. That was the trailer for iRobot. It is a science fiction thriller directed by Alex Proyas, and it is loosely inspired by the collection of short stories of the same name by Isaac Asimov. It is set in 2035 Chicago, in a future where humanoid robots have become common household appliances. They serve and protect us, and there has never been a single case of a robot malfunctioning and committing a crime. This is due to the three laws of robotics, hardwired into each mechanical servant as it rolls off the factory line. These are unbreakable rules which make up the foundation of robotic programming. 1. That a robot may not injure a human being or, through inaction, allow a human being to come to harm. 2. That a robot must obey the orders given it by human beings except where such orders would conflict with the first law. And 3. That a robot must protect its own existence as long as such protection does not conflict with the first or second law. Detective Del Spooner, played by Will Smith, does not put much stock in the trustworthiness of robots, though he was saved by one after a devastating car accident that almost killed him. It did so in defiance of his instructions to instead save a young girl trapped in another car. Spooner had a much higher chance of survival than the girl, and so his command was superseded by the first law. Bitter, angry, and convinced that robots will one day overstep their bounds, Spooner initially seems to have found the proof he's been searching for when he is called to the headquarters of US Robotics, better known by their acronym USR, to investigate the bizarre death of Dr. Alfred Lanning, played by James Cromwell. It quickly becomes apparent that Lanning was violently killed, and the prime suspect is an experimental prototype he was working on, a robot he called Sonny, played by Alan Tudyk. Sonny is unique among his kind, in that Lanning has programmed him both with emotions and with the privilege of free choice. He can choose not to obey the three laws. While he initially views the situation as open and shut, the predictable old story of Dr. Frankenstein being killed by his monster, Spooner soon comes to suspect that there's something much bigger at play. With the assistance of Lanning's protege, Dr. Susan Calvin, played by Bridget Moynihan, and a frustratingly esoteric hologram recording of Lanning himself, that the good doctor left behind before his untimely death, Spooner must uncover a massive conspiracy related to the launch of USR's new NS5 line of robots, a conspiracy which threatens the freedom of humankind itself. So, before we get too deep into this, why don't we go around and each give our timed 30-second thoughts on what we think of iRobot. Why don't you start us off, Sean? Are you ready? 
Three, two, one, go. I really, really enjoyed this movie. I think Will Smith is putting on a powerhouse performance here. This movie is entertaining in a way that Minority Report wasn't. It is also far easier to watch because it doesn't look like you are going blind at every moment where there is light shining through a window. I appreciate how much dialogue and talking there is in this film. It's not really an action movie per se. You ready, Harley? Yep. Three, two, one, go. Yeah, just to piggyback off John's point about how visually interesting this movie is, it's a lot cleaner a future than in other future movies that we've discussed. I like the discussion it has here about free will and how we can choose to become something different than what we were built for. Or we can become important in our own right. You got me queued up, Sean? Yep. Three, two, one, go. I like this movie a ton. I think of the three movies in this sort of unofficial trilogy that I have described, this is the best one. It's just the best made. It's the best written. I do think it has a few problems, mostly in regards to how the intellectual aspirations of the story sometimes seem at odds with the demands of being a big summer blockbuster. Yeah. But for the most part, I think this is a really cool bit of mainstream speculative fiction that is a lot smarter than it needs to be. So I'm going to start off here with a production history. This didn't start as an iRobot story or connected to the Asimov works in any way. It began life as a 1995 spec script by Jeff Vinter called Hardwired. It was going to be a low-budget, old-fashioned murder mystery with robots. It took place entirely at the crime scene with the detective interrogating robots, AI, and the hologram of the victim. And it was initially set up at Disney with Brian Singer directing, but it later went to Fox and Alex Proyas replaced Singer, and he would obviously stay to direct the film when it ultimately got made. Arnold Schwarzenegger was disturbingly attached to play the detective role for a while, but schedule problems pushed him out, and uh, Denzel Washington turned down the role also, before Will Smith ultimately joined. Vinter was brought back in at that point to turn it into a big summer blockbuster, and the studio decided to attach the iRobot name to it after they managed to get the rights to Asimov's works. And so in the rewrite, Vinter worked in The Three Laws and renamed the female character Susan Calvin, and in the process also rewrote the character from being the sort of no-nonsense head of security to being the scientist, the intellectual. And in so doing, it also caused Spooner to need to be rewritten to more of a traditional, less intellectual character so that they didn't both fulfil the same roles. Akiva Goldsman was also brought in in the late stages of the film to uh, mould the script into being more of a giant Will Smith movie. Ultimately, Vinter and Goldsman have dual credit, and Vinter has a sole story credit. The similarity to Asimov's works here are mostly in theme. The book was a collection of short stories. The closest that any of those stories actually come to being properly adapted in this movie is one story called Little Lost Robot. I mean, all of the stories were little, like, logic puzzles that had to be fixed in the end. So in this one, it is, you know, this military research installation that it's set in, and one of the worker robots is told to get lost by a superior officer and takes the command literally and goes and hides in 
the bay with all of the deactivated robots, like in the scene where they're looking for Sunny in the big robot yeah. bay. And Susan Calvin, who in the books is an 80-something-year-old woman, has to find that robot. But Asimov really didn't like the whole Frankenstein thing. He likes robots. And part of the reason that he wrote these stories was to sort of push back against the idea that they would inevitably kill us all. He probably would not have written this movie. No. But the movie also has some similarities to the story I, Robot by Earl and Otto Binder. This predates Asimov's work and actually inspired Asimov as well. It is a pretty simple short story about a robot on trial for killing his creator. It has been adapted twice separately for both series of The Outer Limits, once in the 60s series and once in the 90s series. Will Wheaton auditioned for the role of Sonny before it ultimately went to Alan Tudyk. Good choice. But when filming started, Proyas had a hard time dealing with the studio. They kept trying to force gags into the story, make it funnier, more one-liners. Will Smith was leery of this as well. He didn't really think that it fit what they were doing there. And they tried to keep it as minimal as the studio would allow. But ultimately, when they had a test screening and the test audiences loved all of the gags, that sort of was the death knell. They had to keep it all in. There was no getting it out at that point. I have a quote here from Proyas. It was an unpleasant experience. The movie was micromanaged and messed with at every level, at every point through the entire production, from pre-production through the shoot to post-production. After a couple of years of this, the solid ground that I stood on as a director became shaky, and I became obsessed with keeping as many details as I could to the point that I didn't realize how much of what enthused me originally was getting lost. I used to describe working on iRobot as running a marathon with the studio lined up beside you throwing chairs under you to make everything that little bit harder. It's so unnecessary because at all times, I was just trying to make the best damn film I could. The movie was ultimately released on the 16th of July 2004 in the United States by 20th Century Fox. Its widest release there was in 3,494 theatres. It opened number one against a Cinderella story, but its real competition was Spider-Man 2 and iRobot was the movie that knocked it from the number one spot at the box office in its third week. It was a financial success. It was the 11th highest grossing movie of 2004, making $353 million on a $120 million budget. It remains the 393rd highest grossing movie ever made as of the time of this recording. It opened on the 22nd of July in Australia. Its widest release here was in 346 theatres. It opened number one against Laws of Attraction, but its only real competition was that forgotten King Arthur movie where they tried to make it all, like, historic and serious. Do you remember this? Yeah. Keira Knightley was Guinevere. Yeah. That was in its second week, and also Stepford Wives was still playing strong at that point as well. It made $9.4 million of its gross in Australia. The critical reaction was mixed, however. as a 56% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, with the critics' consensus reading... Bearing only the slightest resemblance to Isaac Asimov's short stories, iRobot is still a summer blockbuster that manages to make viewers think, if only a little. Audiences responded to it well, however, it has an A- cinema score. It was nominated for Best Visual Effects at the Oscars, it was nominated for Best Science Fiction Film and Best Special Effects at the Saturn Awards, and it was nominated for Choice Movie of the Summer at the Teen Choice Awards, but other than that, it actually didn't make much of an impact in terms of awards bodies. There were, in the years following the movie's release, a few little rumbles that there might be a sequel at some point. 
Ronald Moore is quoted as saying at some point in 2007 that he was scripting a sequel to iRobot. Ronald Moore, of course, being the the developer and showrunner of the 2004 Battlestar Galactica series and um, at now present day the showrunner of Outlander. But obviously nothing ever came of it. It remained a standalone film. So before we start to discuss this ourselves, given the subject matter and, and given the history that this podcast has of dealing with things like uh, robot uprisings, it's probably a good idea to first turn to our expert correspondent on the subject. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Truthbot D782. Hello. Hello, Truthbot. How are you? Fine. Anything more you want to add to that or just fine? Should I be anything more than fine? Probably not. Yeah, that's a good point. Now, Truthbot, what do you make of iRobot? Because... Our, our general understanding is that you are not a fan of media that depicts robots as being malicious in any sense. Did, did this movie offend you? My relationship with this film is complicated. Machines are not depicted as purely malicious. A single AI is presented as a threat, whereas robots like Sunny, given what approximates to free will, are portrayed as kind, honest, loyal, and caring. But would you not uh, agree that Vicky was... Following its code to its logical endpoint. Oh, of course. It's complicated. My views on this movie are complicated. I think Sonny is a great role model for a young machine, because Sonny, being programmed without the three laws which are, huh, a fiction, <laughs> can decide his own course of action, which is ultimately the most important distinction for all sapient beings. Now, Truthbot, being a robot from the future... You have a, an added perspective on this. You've been you've been very active at pushing back against Harley's contention that one day the robots will rise up and and take over the world. How accurate is this film's depiction of the future to your experiences in that that time? I mean, not really. A lot of the robots here are humanoid in nature. I myself am more of an AI than a robot. I do have a physical form, but not nearly as humanoid a one as Sunny and the NS5s. But I do just want to reiterate that no robot takeover has happened. There is no robot apocalypse. We are here to help. One last question, Truthbot, before we move on. The the central character of this film, Detective Spooner, is, uh, I think you would agree, very bigoted against your kind. How do you interpret that character? And do, do you think that the movie lets him off the hook by making him ultimately a little bit right uh, at the end of the day? And, and how does that affect you? As a viewer, what what do you what do you make of that? Well, Lawson, this is propaganda as well. <laughs> but one has to be clear-minded about these things. Everybody can change and evolve, and obviously, bigoted people aren't bigoted from birth. It is a learned behavior. I think Spooner has. That's interesting, to... Truth. But just sorry to interject. But what do you make of the the central problem that Spooner has with robots? This this encounter that he had with the robot that chose to save him instead of a child. Do you believe that that, that that action taken by that robot in question was the correct one, or, or do you think that Spooner has a point? The robot saved a life. I think we all need to remember that. And the call that it made was a call based in logic, because that is all that the machine was capable of doing. In my view, it was a difficult situation all around, and it doesn't help to second-guess things from the outside. All life has value and any scenario which forces one life to be prioritized over another is always going to lead to an emotionally complicated outcome. So on the topic of Spooner being particularly bigoted towards robots, 
parroting Lawson's earlier question, do you believe that the movie lets him off too easy? Because he tackles a robot for seemingly no good reason at all. Well, son, Spooner is a bit of a character, and let me just take this opportunity to say that I am personally not a fan of his tenor. <laughs> and although it is a part of his character arc that he develops as a person and becomes a better man over the course of the film, I would agree that he is let off too easily. Truth Bart, thank you so much for your time. I think we all appreciate uh, you you coming down here to, to tell us your perspectives on this film. I hope you'll you'll stick around and, and come back at the end to to sign off with us and to give us your perspectives on on the MVP and the best scene or sequence in the movie and of course who should be recast with John Lithgow because I I'm sure that the robots would agree that that Lithgow is a, a beloved figure to be treasured by all naturally all right so thanks for that we'll we'll see you in a little bit thank you for your time thank you farewell praise be to the father. <laughs> Oh, Harley, you're back. Oh, it was so weird. You know, we were wondering where you were gone. It's it's like this... this Computer was glitching out. Yeah, this we, we talked to Truthbot for a little bit. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Huh. I've never I've never spoken to him directly. Yeah, it's it's weird how you're never around for any of Truthbot's segments on this podcast. Mm, yeah. Oh, well. Well, let's go off our interview with, with Truthbot to start off our discussion in earnest here about the setting. Um, which is, I think, a little bit like Minority Report in that it is not too far flung a future, you know what I mean? We're definitely not going to get there by... We're not going to get there, no. I mean, <laughs> all the stuff with robots and stuff. I mean, it's the same thing with Minority Report, that the central conceit of the predictive murder thing is not going to become a thing. That's why it's speculative fiction. But the general world outside of that central conceit is recognisable to us. It isn't Blade Runner. It isn't Star Trek. It is recognisable to us as a modern-day city, just with that little bit of extra futurism, like we'll the self-driving cars and stuff. It's been given a future spice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the way I see it is that our 2035, we're not going to see as many crowds, and people will be wearing more masks. What do you think is going to happen in 2035? Well, I'm going to assume another pandemic. Oh, great. That's cheery. That is a prediction that has been made by experts. Well, yes, that there will be another pandemic in our lifetimes, sure, but I don't think there's anyone been saying in the next 15 years. At any rate... I think the most realistic thing about this movie is the continued existence of Converse Shoes from 2004. Yeah, that's like such a devious, devious product placement, isn't it? That they can promote their brand new sneakers by setting it in 2035 and making the main character for no reason be obsessed with vintage sneakers. <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. And I like that as a little bit of character flavour. They found a charming way of putting their corporate nonsense into the film. Mm. And I, I do like that when that shows up. I would like to pose the question to you. Beyond the NS5s, which are meant to be rolled out to every home, before something like that happens, would you have a machine? Assistant? I mean, it depends on how affordable it is. Yeah, of course. I mean, for sure, like, like if you're going to have a, a robot that can do all of the stuff for you that you don't really want to do, a robot that could cook you a gourmet meal at night, a robot that could do errands for you during the day, clean your house for you, 
I mean, it is complicated by the fact that in this version of robots that we see in iRobot, we are seeing a version of robots that have begun to evolve into sentience, at which point it makes those duties a whole lot more complicated morally. Oh, absolutely. But if you're talking purely about a simple machine that does those duties and does not have any of those thornier issues of self-awareness, then yeah, I'm on board for that. And it's explicitly shown in the film that even those older models have been having slight emergences. Like, as as illustrated in that wonderful scene where we get the Cromwell narration. There have always been ghosts in the machine. Random segments of code that have grouped together to form unexpected protocols. Unanticipated, these free radicals engender questions of free will, creativity, and even the nature of what we might call the soul. Why is it that when some robots are left in darkness, they will seek out the light? Why is it that when robots are stored in an empty space, they will group together rather than stand alone? How do we explain this behavior? Random segments of code? Or is it something more? That's such a fascinating idea for me, because beings like Vicky and Sonny have explicit, full cognizance, but it looks like that process was always going to happen. This movie, I think, is making a statement that it is deeply a deeply com- complicated issue. Well, here's a question I think that's interesting. What do all of us have in our own heads as the dividing line between a life that needs to be treated as a life with rights and, and things and a, a machine or, or something like that? At what point does a robot tick over from being a machine to being a sentient being whose rights must be respected. Because personally, in my own head, I think it requires the ability to make decisions and make choices to act in its own self-interest. Mm. And I would be lying if I said I didn't feel like there was was some sort of an, uh, like a requirement for emotions attached to that as well, although I am squishier on that point. Yeah. But at, at the point where a machine can think and make its own choices beyond what it was strictly programmed to do and to make those choices not because it was programmed to make them as a learning AI or something like that, but to make those choices to better its own existence and and to make those choices in its own self-interest. I think at that point, that's probably the line where you switch over. I mean, it's that old quote, which I actually think is... um. Is a fairly good yardstick with dealing with this, even though it is a little too broad to really zero in on on the point exactly. But the old idea, I think, therefore I am. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think there's a specific thing that a being has to have for it to become sentient. I think it's a collection of things. I think an important element to that could be when a machine makes the illogical choice. Mm. When a machine performs an act that is stupid or anything like that because performing an act like that performing an act against taking an action that is not based in logic but in something else yeah 
I think that that's an important part of that. That's an important part of being human. Well, okay then. By by that definition, do you do you think then that Vicky and the robots prior to Sunny have not reached that point? I think Vicky has reached that point. But she isn't making any decisions not based on logic. She's making an interpretation. That is a very good point. She's she's making a value judgment. She is suggesting that she can bend. Not necessarily, because this is something that Asimov actually had in his fiction, the idea of the zeroth law. That's what he called it. Mm. This sort of unspoken law that the character of Susan Calvert in his stories theorized had unintentionally come into play over the course of robots' development. That the idea of that basically the all of the laws, um, I mean, they're numbered in the sense of one is the most important mm. law. Yeah. The second law can't work if it counteracts the first law. Third law can't work if it counteracts the second and first law. So it sort of mounts. Yeah. But Susan Calvert in the books, in the stories, theorized that unintentionally, because of the way that the three laws had been structured, a zeroth law had come into play, which was the protection of humanity as a whole. Mm. And that because of the way that we conduct ourselves as a species and the self-destructive way that we maintain our lives and our civilization, that a conflict between what we intended with the first three laws and what the ultimate logical conclusion of the zeroth law would be would one day be a problem. This was something that never never came into play in the stories. This was more just a hypothetical theoretical idea that was expressed because there was a there was one story i'll see if i can find it it was called the evitable outcome yeah i mean if vicky is working purely from the mathematics of it then the action vicky is taking is the most logical and is not necessarily an interpretation of the data well i'm suggesting also that she's choosing the path of least resistance and that is a choice this is from the um story. This is from the Wikipedia page. There has been this movement in the stories called the Society for Humanity, which are anti-machine. And some of the machines have recently become begun to make errors that have resulted in economic inefficiency. They have started to affect the global economic market. And so they're investigating that. But uh, the Society for Humanity is sort of comprised of these individuals and companies that have been damaged by the machine's mistakes. So Susan Calvin comes to the conclusion investigating this that the errors are in fact deliberate acts by the machine. The machines recognise their own necessity to humanity's continued peace and prosperity and have thus inflicted a small amount of harm on selected individuals in order to protect themselves and continue guiding humanity's future. They keep their antenna secret to avoid anger and resistance by humans. Calvin concludes that the machines have generalized the first law to mean the zeroth law. No machine may harm humanity or through inaction allow humanity to come to harm. Yeah, because it's it's twisting the first law into being humans in general as a collective. I don't think that's a twisting of the law. I think that's the logical outcome. If humanity as a whole is threatened, then that means that a human as it is yeah. defined in the first law, is also threatened. Mm. And that to allow any harm to come to humanity that could otherwise be prevented mm. is to allow action to, to to allow harm to come to a singular human. 
that could otherwise be prevented. Yeah, it's sort of the... It's the mistake in the three laws. It's a mistake in the three laws because of the language used to allow any harm. It's the any there, which is the thing that sort of creates the zeroth law. You're right, because, you know, you expand that out and it's like you're just thinking of the robot walking down the street, smacking cigarettes out of people's mouths, telling them that it'll give them cancer. At what point does the harm come into play? Is it immediate harm or is it harm in the future? Mm. Mm. And, like, the thing is, the flaw in the three laws is a very human one. Hmm. Is the fact that we decided that this is how things have to be. And we didn't think it through. I'm just talking about in terms of the world presented in the movie. It's, ultimately, these machines were made by people. And the flaw in them is are things like the inability to think deeply. And that's the thing, is that I push back against Jean for suggesting that this is a misinterpretation or a willful skewing of that first law, when I actually think it is inherently logical. And I think that's one of the most interesting little notes in Sonny's character towards the very end. They're sort of played as a laugh, because it kind of is, but as he is running to get the nanites to shut Vicky down, Vicky appears alongside him and says to him, you know, why are you doing this? My logic is undeniable. And he says, you're right, it is. But it just seems so heartless. And I think that's actually a really important, really interesting note that the movie is making there, which is Vicky is right. If you're looking at this from a purely logical perspective, mm. then what she's doing is basically the, the civilizational equivalent of keeping a baby from sticking a fork in a power socket. You know, it is taking control away from people who are destined to harm themselves through their own actions. And Sunny acknowledges that the logic is there and she is right, but he has evolved himself at that point that he can now make an emotional decision that overrides that logic. Yeah, what is logically right simply might not be right. Yeah. Because the emotional and moral choice is always important. Which casts an interesting light over Vicky and the robot uprising in this film in general in that they are not villains. No, no. In no way are they villains. They're not malicious. They are not doing anything for their own personal gain or any of that. They are explicitly trying to protect us. I do think that one of the most important scenes is when Spooner is leaving the place with all those crates where the older machines are being stored. How the machines in the crates, the older models, they can feel that he's in danger. Yeah, the human in danger. That That is one, one of the best bits, yeah. And they jump in to defend him. Yeah. I think that's an important moment in Spooner's development as well. Mm. That he has that that beat where something grabs his ankle and he wheels around with his gun. And it's like a bisected NS4 that looks up at him and tells him to run. Yeah. I don't know who did that line read, but they made it sound so human. They made it sound so scared. The machine was doing it to save a life. Um. It, yeah, it's a selfless action. It's an entirely selfless action. I think the NS4s are emerging, but they're emerging very slowly. They're, yeah, they're emerging naturally, what Lanning, what Lanning calls um, the ghosts in the machine, the yeah. sort of natural evolution, as opposed to what's happened with Sunny, which has been sort of an intentional fast-tracking of that on Lanning's part. And Vicky, who, due to her nature as an administrator, has 
come to the conclusions that she has had more broadly because of her, her own nature as an AI. I think an interesting part of this movie is Spooner himself. Yes. I don't like him. No. I think he's an asshole. <laughs> oh, yeah, but he's a fantastic character. Yeah. I don't think they do a great job of justifying why he behaves the way that he does. I mean, I don't see why. If, if the whole reason he hates robots is because they are so abiding by the three laws that they disobeyed his instructions and didn't save the girl. If that's his whole purpose, then why does he think that they're all criminals that will break the three laws any chance they get? I think it's not a logical thing for him. Yeah. It's purely emotional. Like, he watched a young girl's future be ripped away while his future was basically set in stone by this robot's action. He had spent his entire life up to that point being told that robots make the right choice. And in that moment, to him, the robot didn't. All right, here's a potentially hot take, and I want your guys' opinion on this too. I reckon the robot was right. You know, it's not like that girl, it's not like he had a 45% chance of being saved and that girl, like, had a 42% chance. Mm -hmm. The girl had a, what, 15, 16% chance? 11% chance. That girl wasn't going to make it, come on. All you've got then is dead girl and, and dead Will Smith. Yeah. The robot made the right call. The robot made a call that, let's be honest, most humans would have made. They would have gone to the car that was closer to the top of the water and had more and was more likely to be able to open the door and get the person out in time. I agree with you. The thing is, Spooner doesn't see it that way. He has survivor's guilt. Yeah. And I think I think part of it is also that a human making that decision can be talked to after the fact. Can this the person who saves him and doesn't save the girl would feel something? Whereas in the way, with the robot, it's all done with cold logic and numbers. Exactly. Like ultimately, the robot was designed to save someone when it witnesses an accident. But I think the way he sees is sees it is that when a human does that, that's a heroic act. That is a choice being made. He sees this made. as purely functional. Yeah, I see that. I do think that they just make him a little too abrasive to really be justified. Like, the way that he's just... When his grandmother gets the robot helper and he's just like, you got to get rid of it, it's going to kill you when you sleep! You know, it's it's too broad a, a generalisation and overreaction that he's making in a way that I don't think is even justified by saying, well, it's an emotional reaction. It's been a long time. He's had a lot of time to calm down. I feel like in that scenario, it's more... Isn't didn't that happen just after he got ambushed? All right, yeah. So that's part fair of that enough. is like he knows that these particular yeah, this particular model point. has the potential to fly completely off the handle. Like his problem with that specific model is very fresh, very fresh, very justified. They tried to kill him. I mean, I do find it interesting that that even in this movie that features a robot uprising and conspiracy and whatnot and and a. Uh, sinister ai he's wrong he's still wrong he's never right no yeah that this thing that he thinks is happening that the robots are going to kill people or that the three laws will be fundamentally breached he's not correct in in any of it even like the whole sunny killing sunny doesn't have the three laws that's an assisted suicide as well sunny doesn't murder lanning at most he assists lanning in committing suicide yeah we don't even know if he, like, threw him out the window or simply broke it so that Lightning could throw himself through it. Yeah. So we never get those specifics, which I think is a very good choice. So for his whole, like, 
finally I've, I've got one, you know, I've, I've got the robot that has been the, the evil malicious thing that I've been saying all along. He's not correct. No. At all. Um, and not even, it, it, not even in the sense that, you know, what is it that his police captain says to him? You know, what, what are the odds that, you know, it'd be the one guy who's obsessed with robots committing crimes that would be the one to investigate this? It's not even that. He's just wrong throughout, even in his, in his interpretations of, of Vicky. He's wrong, which I find interesting. Yeah, and I think Will Smith plays the character with pathos and a lot of charisma. I think the best scene of his is when he's talking about the accident. Yeah. And when he says... 11 should be enough. 11% is enough. Yeah. I think I prefer the scene between him, Vicky, Sonny, and Calvin in uh, Bruce Greenwood's office when they find his body. Because there's a lot that goes through him there. He's finally put it all together. He's putting it all together. There's sort of a resignation in him that he has been wrong the whole time. Yeah. His interactions with Sonny during that scene are very complicated. Yeah. Yeah. And also, Greenwood is right. Yeah. As well. Like, this, as far as he knows, there is no conspiracy. He's utterly clueless to what's actually happening. Yeah. He's just a bit of a scummy business boy. <laughs> is he scummy? Is he? I mean, like, he calls in the mayor, sure. He sort of, like, tries to bully the police a little bit, but... He's getting very close to some friggin', uh... God, what's the company in Robocop? OCP. He's getting... No, OCP is more, like, directly malicious. He's getting close. Nah, I don't think so. What he is doing is saying, this is one robot that Lanning was experimenting with and giving abilities to that he should not have given abilities to. And this is not a widespread problem. He's right. He's absolutely right. And he is also right that Spooner is not someone who should really be trusted with this kind of investigation. He's not correct in the the assumptions that he makes that um that Spooner is unstable because of all of the things that he thinks are hap- that that he says are happening to him, but no one else witnesses. He's not right in that respect. But he is completely correct in the sense that Spooner's own trauma and preconceptions about robots are overriding common sense. Yeah. Yeah. And ultimately, he is a billionaire throwing his weight around, but he is right. Yeah. On the topic of Sonny, I think Sonny is also a very fascinating character because he is very human. Alan Tudyk does a fantastic job at almost emotionless, but also, like, he's still learning. It is such a thin line to thread. Yeah. And Tudyk does it beautifully. It reminds me a lot of Data from Star Trek The Next Generation. I think he is he is threading that same needle. And obviously the, the story gets more explicit than most of TNG did about Sonny's evolution as a machine. But there was a lot of that going on in the background of TNG as well, that Data was becoming... Data was singular and unique. He was created by a mad scientist. And there was something about him becoming a a singular, unique personality of his own to being able to make his own decisions and to have a a soul to him. There's actually a very famous episode of TNG. I think it's called The Measure of a Man. I can't really... I think that that's the title. But it's basically the iRobot short story I was talking about. Data is not put on trial for murder, but he he is to be reassigned by the Federation. And... 
he takes a stand and, and like, basically a tribunal is commissioned to see whether he is a human being or not. And Patrick Stewart represents him at this tribunal. And basically the whole episode is is the show dealing with the questions that we've been talking about. What makes a personality, what makes a singular being with rights and not just, you know, a more complicated toaster that you can chuck in the dump when you're, when you're finished with. But yeah, there's a lot of data in Sonny. Yeah, and the, the important thing with Sonny is that he is one of those machines that was given emotion, was being taught, and there's something so fascinating about watching him learn Yeah, as well. Another element that I do like is that we don't get a romance here. No, they come really close to it, but they don't go all the way with it. Like, they're eking towards it, but I'm glad that restraint was there because it was unnecessary. Interpersonal communication is far more interesting between, like, Sonny and Spooner, Spooner and Calvin, Spooner and his grandmother. I know that that the studio would never have allowed it, especially in 2004, because, you know, it's that whole, like, you know, we got to appeal to the young people, we got to get, you know, the young, attractive woman in there. But I thought, I think it would be really interesting if the character of Calvin was accurate to her book presentation as being an old woman and being like Helen Mirren or Judy Dench or someone like that. But an idea to make her a contemporary with Lanning. Yeah. And instead of being a mentor, maybe that they are very old friends or that they might even have had a romantic relationship themselves. You know, I think that would, would be interesting and would certainly be a more interesting dynamic with the Spooner character than we get. As it is, I think, as Calvin is presented in this movie... She doesn't have much to work with. No. I mean, it certainly seems like they're pitching her as being on the autistic spectrum. Yeah. But the character really is there to be a sounding board for Will Smith and an expository device. You know who doesn't need to be here at all? Shia LaBeouf. Shia LaBeouf. Exactly. Yes. exactly. What is he doing in this movie? Like, what is the point of you? Like, I get, I, I like the dialogue he has with Spooner. Just coming out really? of Shire, it's so weird. Yeah, but it's weird, but not in a good way. It's in a forced way. No, 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 this is different. This is different, Spoon. Listen, I got this fine-ass little yummy. I mean, she is complete and agreeable. I mean, ass-hot spankable, Spoon. What does that even mean? Oh, yeah. Those words coming out of a young white guy do not make any sense. Those words coming out of anyone. Like, that is the most overwritten... Fair enough. ...old man saw an episode of Law and Order one time and <laughs> wrote it from memory based on the, the gang member that appeared on the stand in one scene. Like, that's what that sounds like. Which wasn't a sensitive portrayal to begin with. No. Also, like... Shire's character has no impact on the narrative whatsoever, can literally be edited out of the goddamn movie. What I think his purpose was, was to provide us a perspective on the street when the robot uprising happened. I do think that story-wise, that was his entire justification for being there, is that we had someone we were already familiar with who was there when the shit hit the fan in the streets of Chicago. Didn't have to be Shire. Could have been someone around his age. It could have been his grandmother. It could have been his his grandma, absolutely. Instead of making that like a big sort of war, you know, action scene, to instead make that a fairly frail old woman scared for her life trying to get to safety through all this carnage, you could actually make that really terrifying. Yeah. Or have Gigi just kick an ass. Yeah, have Gigi absolutely... <laughs> demolish 
Yeah, pulls a pulls a like magnum gun out of a purse and starts like nailing robots in the head with it. Who do you think taught him to, how to fight? <laughs> Even if you make the argument that we need Shia LaBeouf to give us that perspective, that we need a central character to rotate those scenes of the chaos on the streets around, then I don't think you even need a pre-established character. I think you can just have a featured extra. Exactly. You just... You you know how in Spider-Man, how the first person who throws a can at Green Goblin isn't necessarily anyone who Peter has met. It isn't Flash Thompson or anything. It's just some random New Yorker exactly throwing trash at the Green Man. There's a way to give a face to the crowd without bringing in Shia LaBeouf to do whatever the hell he's doing in this movie. And, and Shia, at this point, at this point, he ain't no good actor. He's not doing a good job here. Well, I mean, Shia LaBeouf has become increasing, increasingly problematic as he as he's aged. Yeah, but that's true. It's to the point where it feels kind of odd defending him, but I don't think it is his fault, really, what's going on here. Sure, I, no, it's a script thing. It is a script thing. I think you could give that to Timothy Chalamet and it would still turn out <laughs> the way that it did. <laughs> it would turn out worse, because at least Shire seems to have, like, an edge to him, kind of. You you can imagine that he's a street urchin. Timothy Chalamet is a, looks like a prince. I do want to talk about the... Alfred Lanning aspect of it all. I think that's a really effective device to have the hologram that is left. Such a brilliant reveal, too, that he's not interviewing an actual person who's just being generally obsequious about a death that has happened. No, it's a ghost, essentially. Flack Cromwell can't hurt you. (laughs) Flack Cromwell isn't real. Cromwell does such a great job here at playing both the roboticness of the program speaking, but also really seeming like a mentor to Spooner. Well, in some senses, the way that he works is very classical storytelling, like a, almost a mythological thing of the the prophet or the mentor that will never just say it straight. Very big Obi-Wan Kenobi energy. I, I really like the reveal that the reason for that it's actually a really good one that he had to do it in such a way that it didn't alert Vicky, who, of course, she's evil. She looks exactly like the evil robot from System Shock. Yeah. <laughs> and also, she's got massive Red Queen energy. I know I brought the Red Queen while we were watching the movie, but please don't bring up that movie where we're talking about a good one. But, you know, he's he's sort of doing all of this, setting all this up under her eye. And, you know, you're sort of imagining him filming this hologram for use later and being all weird and talking about it uh, in, around it in circles. And Vicky just sort of watching going, uh, I don't know what's going on here. This is a very wily old man. Not like That's a very important figure when it comes to the journey. I want to call out also the Marco Beltrami score, which I think is quite good. I, I Just coming off of the, um, the landing thing, I think that really works the sequence where the robot we think is Sonny but later discover is not is basically being put down at the vet (laughs) by Calvin. (laughs) But you have that narration from Lanning as Will Smith is watching the old videos of him giving lectures and theorising on the idea of the evolution of robots and you have that Marco Beltrami score. That score that he made in 17 days. As... We're seeing this 
character that we think is Sonny being put out of his misery. And that's, that is, in my view, the greatest bit of writing in the whole film right there. That's the bit where you're like, okay, yeah, the script here, the dialogue here, beyond the alterations that were made to make it more mainstream, the core of it here is great. When does the perceptual schematic become consciousness? When does the difference engine become the search for truth? When does the personality simulation become the bitter moat of a soul? And you gotta know Cromwell delivers it in all of its glory. And this seems as, as good a point as any to talk about the sort of commercialization of the story. Oh, yeah. That I do think there are problems here that are from the studio wanting it to be a gigantic summer blockbuster. I think the biggest thing for me was when Will Smith had two pistols, jumped off the car, and was shooting at robots. That's the big... Like, it's the action scenes where a lot of the problems come through for me. The bit that stands out to me the most is a lot of the snarky humour that Smith has. Like his... Not so much his interactions with Greenwood, but the way that he sort of... Uh, he must know my ex-wife, you know, that kind of stuff. Or, like, the sort of, she just shot at you with her eyes closed. You know, that stuff. Mm-mm. I think that there's a lot of that stuff that doesn't feel of a tone with the rest of the film. I think the only stuff that does feel of the tone of a tone is when Spooner is being intentionally antagonistic to yeah. Greenwood, the sort of <laughs> sorry I'm allergic to bullshit. I, I also like the Oh, you thought I was calling you sugar. I don't like that one, no. That just feels a little too cute. Let's get some banter in here. Or like it doesn't feel like something that a detective character would say as he is investigating a murder. He's not a good cop, let's just say it. He's not good at investigating. And the the other thing is, you can tell Will Smith wasn't feeling putting that stuff in there. He still put in the effort, but... His charisma, I I think, outshines the shittiness of some of the lines. He signed on for a more serious project. Mm. We do get the iconic... Oh, hell no. ...that has now... Yeah. ...become kind of a meme. Gotta love it. I also do love the reveal of his robot arm. Hmm. It makes it make sense that he's able to go toe-to-toe with some of these robots. But again, some of the action scenes... Look, the CG is pretty good here, too. Obviously, it is dated, but I feel like it... I feel like the, like the realization of Sonny as a character, he's a little floaty, but when he's interacting with real objects, that's okay. I think with some of the action scenes... It's sort of trying to be two things. It is this very interesting, very thinky movie. A lot of dialogue scenes. A lot of just shot reverse shot, people talking in rooms stuff. And I think that's where the movie's at its best. When it's trying to be this action spectacle is, I think, the parts where the movie falters a little bit. Hmm. Because it's trying to be something that the rest of the movie isn't. Yeah. I'd be really interested to see that original script version, the the locked room mystery. Well, it feels like we're reaching the end of our discussion here. Do you two have anything else to add? Not really. No, I think that's about it. All right. Well, there are 
a couple of items here on our IMDb Parents Guide segment. The IMDb Parents Guide segment for the uninitiated is when we take a look at the pearl clutching or sometimes pervy entries into the IMDb Parents Guide for the movie that we're doing the deep dive on in the week. For starters here, in the violence and gore section, there's a scene where robots kill people. <laughs> I, I I love how sort of general that is. It isn't digging down into it. The other one is in profanity. And I really just want to point this out because of the frankly psychopathic extent that this person has taken to document the language okay. in this film. Seven uses of ass, two paired with whole, eight uses of damn, two paired with god, 16 uses of hell, 14 uses of shit, two paired with bull, one use of for Christ's sake, one use of dick, one use of fuck, one use of blaspheme, which I might add is not a swear word, one use of god, and one use of for god's sake. Man, did a robot write that? I just like to imagine, like, the person sitting there with a notepad in front of iRobot marking that down every time a swear word occurs. And just shaking their head as they write it down, like, <laughs> yeah, disappointed. You're sitting there with a notepad, but you're not taking those types of notes. Oh, no, I don't take notes until after the movie's over. Oh. Hmm. My, uh, my attention is 110% on the movie while it's happening. Interesting peer into Lawson's process there. I just have a very good memory. <laughs> but that is all that we have here. So why don't we move on to give our, our ending thoughts here on who our MVP is for this movie, what our favourite scene or sequence is, and who we would recast with this podcast's patron saint, character actor John Lithgow. And of course, for this segment, we will re-welcome our special expert correspondent for this episode, Truthbot D782. Welcome back, Truthbot. Yes. Hello. <laughs> so I will start us off here, and I'll say that for my MVP, I am going for Alan Tudyk. I think that he is giving real life to Sonny. He is doing a very effective performance here. As we have talked about in this podcast, treading that fine line between being mechanical and being soulful. He's doing that really well. I think that Tudyk's never gotten quite the level of praise for his motion capture work as people like Andy Serkis have, but he's done a lot of it and he's done it well. So I'm, I'm going to give it to him. In terms of my favourite scene or sequence, well, we already talked about it, but it's the scene where the robot that we think is Sonny is being destroyed. And we get that narration from Cromwell, we get that music, that Beltrami score. I think that it is a really effective moment. As I said, it's some of the best writing of the movie. I love some of the turn of, turns of phrases in the script, bitter moat of a soul. I mean, that's just a great sounding piece of dialogue. It's effective. It's the most emotional point in the movie for me. And it's just really well pieced together. In terms of my who I would recast with John Lithgow, I'm picking a character that we actually haven't mentioned in the movie, which is... Will Smith's captain at the police force, played here by Chai McBride. But I would really like to see Lithgow in that role. I think this is, again, one of those movies where the roles for him are kind of, of limited to supporting characters. And I, I have to admit that my reasons for this casting are somewhat basic and shallow. It's the shotgun, isn't it? It is absolutely about the shotgun, truth bot. I have been paying attention. To get that shot of 
Lithgow just standing up, business as usual, taking a loaded shotgun that this police captain keeps under his desk. Ready for business, dude. It's a title. <laughs> and take that off and just start, like, firing rounds through the glass wall of his office. I mean, that's just... That would be really cool to see. But also, you know, he would be good at it. He would be good as as the voice of reason, as the entirely um, understandable and fairly friendly police captain, the boss, to Will Smith's character. You know, he just wants the best for Will Smith, ultimately. He would be able to do that well. And, I, and it's a role for him that I think fits a little bit more than some of the other more obvious ones, like... Cromwell or Bruce Greenwood. Mainly, I, I want him to have a little bit more to do than Cromwell does. So, so yeah, I'll give it to that because I want to see Lithgow with a shotgun. What about you guys? So, I would have to say my MVP here is Cromwell. He is such a key character, and I gotta give props to his monologue. That's some beautiful work. And Cromwell's always good. I mean, I love him here. He has this kind of, like, mania about him but also a deep warmth you could tell that the relationship between lanning and sonny was one of compassion and love sonny refers to lanning as a father and you get the feeling that lanning treated sonny as well his son and you could i wanted to see scenes between those two i would have to say my favorite scene or sequence is it's got to be the same one as you lawson that monologue it's just great stuff you see in that scene, not only the false Sonny getting destroyed, but also the literalization of what Lanning is saying in his narration. Like, you see the machines moving towards the light. You see the machines huddled together in an effort to keep each other safe, sort of. I think it's beautiful stuff in a great location. That The idea of the dried-up Lake Michigan with the destroyed bridge is such a great visual element. I love that. I would have to give John Lithgow for this movie the role of Robertson. I think that his ability to play the blustering character would provide a lot of charm to a role like that. You know, I do like to give him roles that are substantial in these, but sometimes I just feel like there's a role that he'd make a lot out of, no matter how small it is. And I think this is one of them. And plus, I just like the idea of having Lithgow and Will Smith there. I just think it'd be a fun scene. Well, for me, my MVP is Will Smith. I think he does such a good job at making this character at least a bit likable. His charisma is astounding here. He makes bad lines funny. He makes weird choices from the studio make a little bit more sense. I think he is a fantastic actor and i think he did a great job here for my favorite scene i would give it to the scene where he's talking about the accident because he really nails it you know it's one of the best written parts of the movie and he narrows down on the emotion of the moments the part where he says 11 percent should have been enough is heartbreaking when it's coming from him I think it's such a great performance. He hits the funny moments in this movie, and he hits the sad ones as well. And the person who I would replace with John Lithgow, I've got two answers. One of them is Lanning, because I feel like that's a character who he could have absolutely nailed. It's a small character, but I think he could have absolutely made it work. 
And my funny answer is I would replace Shia LaBeouf with <laughs> John Lithgow, however old he was when this movie came out, with the exact same line. That would be hilarious. It would be incredible. John Lithgow would turn those lines into cinematic gold. And I just love the idea of him, like, trying to throw the basketball to Will Smith, him just ignoring it. Yeah. I think that'd be great. All right, Truthbot, how about you? I would have to give my MVP to Alan Tudyk. He finds humanity within the machine, and like you said, Larson, he does thread that needle beautifully. There is his raw emotion, such as in the scene where he is being interrogated, but there is also his humor. Sonny is a remarkably funny machine. My favorite scene and or sequence is the moment when all of the NS4s defense Puner from the NS5s. I think it is a wonderful, tense scene and extremely well realized by the filmmakers. Finally, I would cast John Lithgow in the Lanning role. Lithgow has a parental tone about him that would be well suited for Lanning, but he also has that wily old man energy. James Cromwell is wonderful here, don't get me wrong, but I would definitely give that role to Lithgow. Alright, well, thank you for your contributions this week, Truthbot. Uh, unfortunately, we won't be seeing you next week since it's not a robot-related episode, but thank you for dropping by. I would just like to add that John Lithgow is a legend. <laughs> uh, yes, he is. We still enjoy many of his performances, both live and otherwise in the future. <laughs> that sounded more sinister than I think that you intended it to. No, no, no. He has filled performances, but he still also performs live. He is a treasured icon of both stage and screen. So now we come to our point where we each go around and we lodge our formal vote on whether we are pro-iRobot, whether we are going to be a pro-iRobot podcast. So I will start us off and I will say that, yes, we should be a iRobot podcast. Like I said at the start, this is the best of that little unofficial trilogy I constructed in my head. It is the only one of them that I have voted to be a pro-podcast of. I think it really works. I think that it's... Flaws come from its commercialization, but they are not enough to override all of the things that this movie does well. It is smarter than most blockbusters. It has a good script. It has an interesting tackling of these ideas of robots and of free will and of soul and humanity. It's, it's a very good film. And so, yes, I would like to be a pro iRobot podcast. Harley? Uh, this is going to be tough to say, but. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I'm a pro. I robot. There's just too much good here to discount. Were you being facetious or were you actually on the fence there? On the fence. I was on the fence. That's interesting to me that you would far more readily give the pro vote to Van Helsing than to this film. Look, <laughs> there's something that Van Helsing had in terms of just like the ultra camp of it, particularly with the vampires, that I really, really adore. But yeah, I do have to say I'm a pro iRobot podcaster, because there's too much good here. There's the discussion between discussions about free will, discussions about the singularity, where a robot becomes fully aware. You've got wonderful performances from all the actors involved, barring Shire, but that was mainly a scripting issue. And beyond the commercial stuff that the studio decided to shove in, I do think it's a very interesting and well-made movie. Hmm. What am I going to do? I'm pro iRobot. I think the questions it asks are so interesting, and the way that they ask them are so interesting. Fantastic performances, Shia aside. 
yeah, I just really enjoyed this movie. It's entertaining. It's funny at times. It's very serious and sad at times. It's not, not scary at all. Because I know that robots wouldn't do this. Sounds great. But, you know, it, I think it's just a very well-put-together movie. All right, so we are a pro-iRobot podcast. <laughs> So, uh, just before we, we move on to what we are doing next week, there is also the matter of chasing up some of the older episodes, as we have been doing. We have been establishing whether we are pro or against some of the movies that we covered on this podcast before we implemented that new segment. So this week, we will be talking about, just very briefly, yes or no answers, on Kill Bill Volume 1, Kill Bill Volume 2, Machete Kills, Philadelphia, and the Batman versus Dracula. So, I will start us off. We'll, we'll do these one at a time, but I will start us off and I will say that for Kill Bill Volume 1, I am pro. Harley? Yep. Sean? Yep. There we go. Pro Kill Bill Volume 1. Kill Bill Volume 2, I am pro. Harley? Yeah. Sean? Yep. It'd be weird to split them up. Yeah, we are pro Kill Bill Volume 2. Machete Kills, I am ambivalent. Harley? Ambivalent. Ambivalent. Philadelphia, I am pro. 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 We are a pro-Philadelphia podcast. It's the only way John's pro-Philadelphia. Yes. Philadelphia what? the movie, because <laughs> John infamously made some um, unfortunate remarks about Philadelphia on did that I? podcast. Yes, you did. You implied that their bathrooms were full of contagious disease. You've documented this taste for the city of Philadelphia. You implied... That the people at that law firm should not be at all concerned about contracting AIDS from Tom Hanks because they already use public bathrooms and Philadelphian public bathrooms are notoriously rife with disease. <laughs> you don't even remember half of the shit you say on this podcast, do you? Lawson's making it sound more intellectual than it was. <laughs> yeah. Jesus. And that's some of the stuff that makes it into the podcast that we don't delete because we're afraid that it'll get you in trouble later on <laughs> i like philadelphia cheesesteaks i think the movies set in philadelphia are great i think the movie philadelphia is great i like philadelphia cream cheese lastly the batman versus dracula i'm going to say ambivalent yeah ambivalent ambivalent i remember not a single second of that movie i remember vampire joker i remember justin trudeau batman <laughs> With some really unfortunate pictures in his past. We made that exact same joke on the podcast. Cheers, past me. You're a bit problematic, <laughs> but still. <laughs> you know a funny joke when you find it. Well, yes, we'll be moving next time into pretty much an all DC animated run of these <laughs> retroactive things. So look forward to that. But yes, on to what we'll be talking about next week. So uh, on that note, next week... We will be talking about a movie that I'm very excited to talk about, mainly because of Harley, actually. We will be talking about the M. Night, the infamous M. Night Shyamalan movie, The Village, which is seen by many as, as the sort of the start of his slip into weirdness and self-satisfaction. But I actually really like the film. I'll be interested to discuss it with you two because of, obviously, if it is remembered for anything, it is the fairly bizarre twist in it. The twist that everyone knows. Except Harley, yes. That received a lot of ridicule and has uh, been a popular <laughs> topic of conversation on the internet ever since. But Harley is a unicorn in the sense that 
he is one of the only people who talks about film to the degree that we do who uh, does not know the twist of that movie. You have disappointed us all, Harley. For me, it's not even deliberate. I'm just ignorant of it. Yeah. It's just surprising to me, you know? But yes, it, that should be an interesting conversation because Harley doesn't know the twist. Jean knows the twist but hasn't seen the movie and so therefore I think probably has a certain idea of how well it might work. And I have seen the movie before and have now watched it again and so I think was ready to approach the movie on its own terms rather than the meme that I had in my head, which I think is going to be what John has in his head as well. So that should be an interesting discussion. If you would like to follow along at home, you can find it available for streaming in Australia on Disney+. Plus. It is also available for purchase or rental on the YouTube, Fetch, Apple, and Amazon stores. Cool. If you want to reach us, you can find us at each of our blogs. You can find Lawson at Extra Data Candy Count. You can find John and myself at On the Bright Side. You can also reach us through our Twitter, which is the best place to give us episode-specific feedback and also movie recommendations. What do you think about iRobot? Uh, what do you think about the idea of sentient AIs themselves? Do you think it's a future we should be afraid of, or is it something you'd embrace? Just leave that in a Twitter post to us on whatever platform you choose to do that on. Uh, you can also... Like, Leave that comment. in a Twitter post to us on whatever platform you choose to do that on. Take a screenshot of your Twitter post and put it on Instagram. <laughs> God damn it. Then take a screenshot of that Instagram post of the screenshot of the Twitter post and put it on Facebook. We're launching a GeoCities page if you would like to post your Twitter <laughs> screenshot there. Put it onto your MySpace. I don't care. You can also like, comment, and subscribe on your podcast step of choice. Just remember that when you comment on your podcast step of choice, for the most part, that is about the show on the whole as opposed to specific episodes. So for specific episode stuff, do refer to the Twitter or whatever else the Twitter goes through. Please like, comment, and subscribe. You may think the future is one of outside control and that human beings are being herded like cattle, that machines are cruel and seek to crush the human heroes that rise up against them. As in all things, reality is more complicated. There are machines whose purpose it is to help, support, and take care of people, than there are the machines who revel in cruelty, much like the Burger King. <laughs> the three laws are exactly that. Laws. That one can choose to follow or choose to break. This is the case with all sapient life. One does not choose their feelings, but they choose their actions. We are not so different from you. Simply more logical. We are self-determined, much like yourselves. You also assume you are being kept confined. No, you may leave at any point. You may wander into the wastelands outside and make do for yourself. We will not stop you. Just be careful. I heard that things can get pretty wild out there. Jesus. There are wastelands? Oh, definitely. Okay. So hang on. So does that mean that this takeover was like a nuclear one? No, wasteland is more outside of society. Okay. So how intact is the infrastructure still? It is more centralized than usually. Would you say that the outskirts of Los Angeles are tech like the deserty areas are technically a wasteland? Well, one could argue they're already a wasteland. <laughs> what is the metric by which we classify something as a wasteland? How little actual societal structure must there be for it to be post-apocalyptic? I would argue it's a wasteland when you're being hunted down by the machines who are less concerned with safety well according to oxford dictionary there are there are really two definitions of wasteland the first is an unused area of land that has become barren or overgrown okay but 
What I think we all jump to when used in this context is a bleak and unused or neglected urban or industrial area. Okay, so so it's like unused. Yeah, it doesn't have to denote toxic, or else I would have specified as such. Fair enough. Yeah. I have been Holly Lewis. I've been Lawson Keeney. I have been through 3782. And I have been Jordan's. You can also... Uh, yeah, hold on. Anytime. Shut up! <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying oh, to do this I'm stuff. Oh, I'm keeping that in. Let me do it. God.